So, so to my mind, the difference is not in the species and the ecological niche, but it's a constraints on movement in those two experimental settings. I feel that the rat grid cells and the bat grid cells are really fundamentally the same. Because, you know, bats and rats can navigate in these volumetric spaces pretty effectively, the fact that the grid cells are producing such irregular patterns suggests to me that the regularity of the pattern is not what the grid cells are for. So I, I believe that the regularity is just an artifact. It's, a, it's a, probably a pretty unpopular opinion because <laughs> there are so many computational models where, where the regularity is critical. So a memory is a metastable state. Mm. That's, that's a nice way of looking at it. And then retrieving a memory is opening a channel yeah, to yeah. You know, the action possibilities. Yeah, so, I mean, the problem with this analogy is that... Hi, everyone. I'm a bit obsessed with grid cells. Grid cells are the spatial navigation-related cells that with play cells got the Nobel Prize in 2014. If you've never heard about them, I recommend you read my primer, which is in the description. It has some helpful visualizations and only takes like 5 minutes to read. So grid cells were mostly studied in mice and rats navigating in 2D, but I'm really interested in how these grid cells encode 3D spaces, and since they lose a grid-like structure in 3D, we might better call them multi-field cells. So Kate, who you just heard, is one of the two most qualified people on the planet to speak about multi-field cells. We talk about her work in climbing rats in 3D, and I ask her lots of difficult questions on the role of ecological niches, the animal speed, symmetry breaking, and more. We also go a bit physics-y and discuss her work with Carlo Rovelli on entropy and how evolution, life, memory, and time fit into that. At the end, we chat about our impending climate crisis and some career advice. As usual, the reading and timestamps are in the description. Enjoy. Hi, Kate. Welcome to the podcast. So you were already recording in the infernal cortex in the 90s. Tell us a bit about the story of how you missed your Nobel Prize. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's, it's a painful but amusing story. So um, I was a relatively new postdoc. I had gone to John O'Keefe's lab uh, at UCL to learn how to record place cells because he discovered place cells. And um, I was very interested in, in, in how these cells work. Uh, and I was interested, as most people were, in the question of how the cells know where the rat is. So a place cell will fire when the rat goes to a particular place. But um, depending on the direction um, that the rat walks into that place from or whatever, the, the sensory information coming in could be really different. So the place cell somehow is able to process all of this really complex, uh, you know, very variable sensory information. And, and determine whether it, it um, should be firing. So it was this big question, like how does that cell know? And so we were doing a lot of talking about this and looking at the, um, the inputs to the place cell system. And one of the really big inputs comes from entorhinal cortex, which is um, a part of the neocortex that's quite deep in the brain. It collects information from all sorts of other sensory um, cortices and also other, you know, other brain regions as well. And it, um, it sends a big uh, projection to the hippocampus. So, um, so a few of us, you know, at various you know labs around the world, were thinking we should record from entorhinal cortex and see what we could find. 
And it's quite hard to record from in the rack because it's down the side of the brain. Mm. Yeah. And um, the skull of the rat is very thick at that point, and it's quite difficult to get your electrodes in. So, so the surgeries are very difficult, and it's quite hard to get good recordings. Um, but I had started recording from there. I'd worked out that I needed to kind of angle my electrodes a particular way to get, get them in properly, and I started to get some data. And I was finding cells, and I was seeing some hints of spatial activity. Um, and other people had reported similar things. So, you know, there'd be cells that uh, fired not all over the environment, but just when the rat went into some regions of it. But it wasn't necessarily in these um, nice, neat um, sort of firing fields that the place cells produce. It was a lot messier. So, so it looked like it was um, a more primitive type of spatial information, if you like. Um, and, and there were all sorts of other cells, interesting cells that were um, firing, you know, rhythmically and all of this kind of stuff. So I decided to focus on those. And, and so my first paper from O'Keefe's lab was looking at these, uh, what we call theta modulated cells. Um, and I had just filed away in my notebook. Yeah, I'm seeing these interesting spatial cells that they, they seem to have more than one place where they like to fire, not very many of them, you know. And I left it at that. And then um, the Moser came to spend some time in the O'Keefe lab while I was there. And um, my husband, who was also in the lab, who's a, an engineer, he and, he and I uh, taught the Moses how to do single neuron recording. And we had lots of discussions about, you know, that, this question of how place cells know where to fire. And the Moses went back to Norway uh, and set up their their first lab. So they'd just finished their PhDs. It was, it was their first lab. Um, they set up their lab and they started recording from interrhinal cortex as well. And they were um, they were just more successful than, than me <laughs> in finding cells, basically. So they also found these, you know, multi-location uh, cells that fired in, in multiple places. And they they published uh, a paper and um, and also brought some posters on these cells to the Society for Neuroscience meeting. Um, and while they were there, one of the people. Bill Skaggs, who um, is a theoretical neuroscientist, who stopped and saw their poster, looked at the kind of patterns that they were showing on their poster and said, it looks like these uh, multiple locations where these cells are firing, they might they might not be random. It looks like there's hmm. some kind of regularity to this. So why don't you record in a much bigger environment and see if that's the hmm. case? So they did. They recorded in a two-meter um, environment. And, of course, they saw this really beautiful, very regular pattern um, and that, of course, is grid cells, and that's the canonical grid cell pattern, um, very hexagonal pattern where every location where the cell fires has six locations at an even spacing around. Um, it's just a just an extraordinarily um, beautiful pattern. So I, um, after they published their paper, I went back and I looked at my data, and I thought, yeah, these multiple locations I can see they're 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 regularly spaced for sure. That's a grid cell. <laughs> so I and I so I recorded those in 1994, and the grid cell paper was recorded in 2005, and of course that that won them you know the, the half share of the Nobel Prize uh, nine years later. So yeah. So I, I kid myself that I, I could have had mm -hmm. a Nobel Prize. It's not really true. I mean, they, they, um, they you know, not only did, did they expose the discovery that that other people had nibbled around the edges of, but they also did an amazing amount of work to um, to really understand, you know, where the information comes from to the grid cells, where it goes from, how it gets into the mm -hmm. campus. 
um, you know, the neurotransmitters involved, all of this is a um, really exceptional scientific program of work that they did. Yeah, so I, I mean, at that poster, like that, that was a, an amazing poster uh, comment. Yeah, on the recording for a bigger. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, field, I mean, yeah. So, but that's how science works, you know. I mean, not not to um, disparage the winners of the Nobel Prize, mm. who are yeah. extraordinary scientists, but the Nobel Prize is promoting a view of science that captures our imaginations. You know, a, mm. a few people make spectacular discoveries, but the reality yeah. is that um, it's really the tip of a mountain. Um, a whole community of scientists um, builds up a program of work and, the, and they're all contributing ideas and discussion um, and, and, you know, the, the community influences the ebb and flow of, of you know, of, of attention to things and so on. Um, and, you know, it's, it's fun to select a few people um, who have stumbled on a, a particular nugget. But I think also we need to appreciate that that's just symbolic of, of a whole bunch of stuff that went on behind the scenes. And I personally, I would like to see the Nobel Prize awarded to a discovery rather than to discoverers, mm. because then everybody who's, who had a little yeah. part to play in that discovery, no matter how small, would think, oh, cool, you know, <laughs> I got a bit of the Nobel Prize. Um, mm. So, yeah. Yeah, about all of the people contributing, there's also this sort of sometimes this inevitability to uh, these discoveries being made, for example, you were saying that when you were recording in the Ferrano context, it was kind of messy. You weren't sure what to make of it. I, I suppose grid cells would make zero sense if we hadn't first discovered play cells, right? Because without play cells, they're even more messy to think about. And there's so there's sort of, um, I guess, this progression where we first need to figure out certain things and then only other things can be figured out. And that kind of comes with this iterative, everyone is contributing their little bit to the science. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's exactly right. You know, we wouldn't have even been looking for those signals if we didn't know about place cells. And, you know, the the grid cells wouldn't have been discovered if the rat had been in some other experimental setting, like solving a, um, a traditional mm. maze task. The, the pallet chasing task, which we commonly use for place cells, was developed by Bob Muller and his colleagues. And, and what it does is it encourages rats to, to do something quite unnatural, which is to forage uniformly over a large mm. open surface. Like like um, a rat would not normally do that because it's not very adaptive. Um, so that task was developed to, to help us understand place cells. Um, and, and that exposed the grid cell pattern very nicely. Had the rat been doing something else, we probably wouldn't have seen it. So yeah, it's, it's a, there is a lot of serendipity in, in scientific discoveries. Yeah, so I, I kind of will probably be quite discriminatory in the sense that I really want to focus on grid cells and neglect all the places, all, all other interesting navigation-related <laughs> cells in this episode. But I think we should briefly maybe talk about the relationship between place and grid cells, because as you said, that was that kind of got you into talking with the Moses about like what is forming these place cells and sort of based off experiment, lesion studies, anatomy, how do you think about that relationship? So the original assumption I think for a lot of us when grid cells were discovered is that the grid cells are kind of telling the place cells where to fire because the anatomy mm. seems to support that you know like I said there's this big projection from the medial entorhinal cortex where the grid cells are 
Um, and they have, you know, these these multiple spatial locations. And, you know, very quickly, some theoretical models came along that sort of said, look, if you take a whole bunch of grid cells, you can you can add add up their activity and it and it peaks in one place in the environment, and that could be how place fields come come along. And it all made sense, you know. Um, but then some things came along that seemed to not fit with that. Um, some of that was from my work, for example. So I had started recording and um in vertical space with animals climbing around on a pegboard. And I found that place cells would fire in uh, in discrete locations um, on the over this vertical wall, but grid cells didn't produce a grid. Mm. So there was right there um, a disconnect between grid cells and place cells. And then the Moses themselves um, um, worked from their lab, Tora Bonavi and, and um, her kind of collaborators in their lab, um, showed that if you... Um, inactivate the um, uh, sorry, if you inactivate the place cells, let me get this right, if you inactivate the place cells and the grid pattern breaks down. So that mm. seemed to suggest that maybe the information is going the other way. Yeah. Um, and then um, some experiments from Mark Brandon and colleagues show that if you if you inactivate, sort of indirectly inactivate the grid cells by destroying the um, the theta pattern that um, that feeds the interrhinal and hippocampal kind of systems. Um, then the grid cells break down, but the place cells still fire in place fields. So the, the, there's these kind of converging lines of evidence that suggest that um, that it's not as simple as grid cells tell place cells what to do. Mm. Possibly. So what I think, and I think a lot of people think is going on, is that there's a two-way interaction where the grid cells are feeding certain kinds of information to place cells. But the place cells can manage without that under some circumstances, which is why uh, the place cells will persist if you inactivate the grid cells. But um, but the grid cells they do seem to be doing some type of distance measuring, you know, process, and the place cells don't have to have that process to fire if the rat can see lots of landmarks and and so on. If the rat can't see landmarks, if you turn out the lights or or, or whatever, um, then it's dependent on uh, knowing just. Um, how far the rat has walked. So this is a process called path integration. Um, and then it's likely that that they would depend on, on grid cells. And then conversely, the grid cells um, are probably getting information coming back from the place cells, which is why if you inactivate the place cells, the grids start, start, start to slowly break down. So I think it's a kind of a two-way process. And that fits with the anatomy. We now know that there's actually lots of projections going back from the place cells to the deep layers of entorhinal cortex. Um, and anyway, much of the brain, we're now realizing that the brain is not nearly as sequential as we thought. <laughs> There's so much stuff that goes back as well as forward that uh, we're really collectively rethinking how we how we think this all works. Yeah, the, the, the recurrence is really annoying for all of our linear minds to make sense of it. Yeah, but... yeah. It makes it quite difficult to test hypotheses because, mm. you know, if you if you try and remove an input, from a system, you're also removing, you know, an output from that system, which may in mm. turn be, be affecting some other input, you know, so, so nothing is simple. Yeah. So you were mentioning your 3D work and let's talk about that. I thought we could kind of start talking about, uh, the comparing species and rats, bats and humans have totally different uh, spatial umwelts. So could you kind of talk to how they're navigational planes, reference frames, vegetational axes differ, and how that might be differently reflected in uh, grid cells. Yeah, so, so we, um, 
started to look, you know, we've always, my, my lab's always used rats. Um, and we started to look at what happens if the rats start to explore the vertical dimension. What do the place and grid cells do? How, how do they cope with this extra dimension? And um, the first thing uh, that we did was to, to still kind of use two-dimensional surface, but to just turn it on its side. So we created mm. a kind of climbing wall for rats. And um, and like I mentioned before, we recorded place grid cells and we found that place cells still had place fields, but grid cells, um, they did they, they were active um, and they were active in a, in a kind of periodic way if you look at the horizontal dimension. So the, the wall has two dimensions. One of them is horizontal, one of them is vertical. And if you look at the horizontal uh, dimension of the grid cell pattern, it was still periodic. Mm. So um, if you... If you were to look across the wall, you would see that there would be um, a place where the cell was active, and then there would be a gap, and then there would be a place where it was active, and then a gap, and so on. Um, so it looked like the wall was kind of cutting across a grid pattern, if you like. But then when we look at the vertical component of the wall, we found that we didn't see any periodicity. So places where the cell fired, <clears throat> it fired everywhere in the in the vertical dimension, places where the cell was silent, it was silent everywhere in the vertical dimension. So the pattern that emerged was these vertical stripes. So whereas on a on a horizontal surface that the cell makes a blob pattern, on this vertical climbing wall it was making a stripey pattern. So we started thinking maybe the brain represents vertical space differently, and and the, then we started thinking, but also. You know, it might be that these rats haven't really had much experience of vertical space. They've always been in a, a little cage. You know, on the other hand, they haven't had much experience of large-scale horizontal space either. Um, or it may be the way that the rats are walking around on on that wall. So we had them standing on peg pegs that stick out of the wall, and when they're standing on the pegs, the body is actually horizontal. Even though the rat can climb up and down, mm. the body is still aligned horizontally. And maybe that's critical. So maybe the grid cells don't track distance that the rat moves um, in the in the dimension orthogonal to the alignment of its body. So then we did an experiment where we we did have a wall again, um, but instead of standing on pegs, the rats were now clinging to chicken wire. So the body was aligned with the wall, not aligned with the floor. Um, and we found indeed that we recovered. Um, a circular pattern for the firing fields for the grids. So they were now tracking distance as the rat walked across the space, but the pattern was very expanded. So although they were tracking distance, they seemed to be doing this at a different scale from the horizontal. So this kind of um, difference in locomotion and difference in body orientation had produced this big change in the pattern. So we thought, well, that's interesting. So the um, this pattern isn't um, isn't something that's kind of, fixed to the outside world, if you like. <laughs> this is something that's generated by the animal uh, interacting with its environment, and the nature of that pattern is affected by that, that animal and that environment. So we thought that was um, interesting. So then we moved to thinking, well, so um, what happens if the animal can explore a volumetric space? So now it can move in all three dimensions. So is the does the kind of the animal's map of space permeate all three dimensions? So we created what we call the lattice maze, which is um a crisscrossing set of rungs that that the rats can climb on. Um and so so I had 
um, some people who kind of pioneered this maze. So Alexey Balakich, who was a PhD student in my lab, um, built the prototype of this maze and showed that, that rats can navigate through it. So they seem to know where they are in this structure. Um, and he kind of um, optimized the spacing of the rungs so that they could step from rung to rung. And, and he discovered this um, this kind of malt paste, this kind of sweet, sticky paste that you can dab onto the rungs of the maze. And the rats, will they, they go absolutely wild for it. They love it. And they'll work mm. for hours um, to, to try and find bits of this paste. So, so he um, he got this kind of paradigm working for the, the exploring, and then um, and and he also showed he was the one who showed the pegboard stripes on the on the pegboard, and then um, we wrapped up that experiment, and then Roddy Greaves joined my lab, and his task um, as a postdoc was to uh, take this lattice maze and to record place and grid cells in it, and so with a team of students, he spent five years kind of setting up the tracking system so that it could track the animals in, in um, volumetric space um, and a wireless recording system so that they didn't have mm-hmm. to have a recording cable so that they could move through into the interior of this maze without without getting uh, tangled and so on. Um, so a lot of technical problems to solve, but he managed to, to eventually get it to work. And um, and he found that the place cells will form um, globules, so the, the or at least the regions where they are active are kind of globular, if you like. Um, you know, it's not the cells that are globular, it's the, the place where the cells mm-hmm. are active. Um, so they form these globules that are distributed throughout the space, so different cell, cells are in different places. So clearly there's some ability of these cells to know where the rat is in this volumetric space. Um, and work coming out of Nakam Ulanovsky's lab um, in in um, Tel Aviv looking at bats was finding the same thing, that um, that bats which fly through volumetric space. They don't climb on rungs. Um, well, they can, but they, they, they typically don't. Um, they, they were also showing the same pattern. So these it's very different, um, ecologically different species showed uh, pretty much the same pattern, these uh, globular regions where play cells would fire. And then this is sort of surprising, but you know, to, to my mind, pleasing finding was also that the bats and the rats with the grid cells also showed the same pattern. Almost. So, so um, they 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 found something a little bit different, and um, we differ. So the labs differ in how important we think this difference is. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't think it's particularly important, but um, so so what what we both found is that the grid cells will produce circular blobs. Sorry, spherical blobs. Um, so volumetric versions of the circular firing fields that they hmm. would normally form on a flat surface. Um, but they they're quite variable in size and they are irregularly distributed through the space. So they don't form a nice close packed hexagonal array. So the regular pattern that we see on the floor when on a two-dimensional surface, that's just completely disappeared in the volumetric space. So that was the same for the bats and rats. Where we differ is that the uh the um the Ulanovsky group looked at the statistics of of the distances between the firing fields, and they found that it's not random. So that those mm. distances, although it's irregular, it's more uniform than you would expect by chance. Whereas when we looked at the statistics and we used their statistical analysis, and we also used some others, we, we, we really try and beat our data to death. And we could not in any way that we looked at it see any um, anything except randomness to the distribution of the firing globs in our apparatus. Um, now, you might say, well, that's the difference between bats and rats. 
that the bats have a naturally three-dimensional ecology, whereas mm. you know, rat, rats um, are different. I don't believe that that's the reason. I I think it's um, it's another one of these effects of the locomotor constraints on the animals. So in the same way that we saw a difference in the same animal between whether it was walking on a wall versus walking on a floor, um, I think you would see a difference if an animal could smoothly move through a space with wings or has to climb on you know on rungs. So so to my mind, the difference is not in the species and their ecological niche, but it's a constraints on movement in those two experimental settings. So I I feel that the rat grid cells and the bat grid cells are really fundamentally the same. Mm. They're, they're doing the same thing. Um, and because you know bats and rats can navigate in these volumetric spaces pretty effectively, the fact that the grid cells are producing such irregular patterns suggests to me that the regularity of the pattern is not what the grid cells are for. Mm. So I... I believe that the regularity is just an artifact. It's, it's a, probably a pretty unpopular opinion because <laughs> there are so many computational models where, where the regularity is critical. Mm. Um, but I, I think it's just a byproduct of, of, of an unusual experimental setting. And, and, and then that opens up the question, well, what, what are they for? You know, if, mm. if it's not the regularity, what is it? Uh, and I yeah. think it's a wide open question. Yeah, I've got lots of follow-ups. So um, let's start with the, um, comparing the pegboard study with the um, chicken wire setup. So pegboard sort of, they, they stand horizontally, chicken wire, they kind of, the, the wall in a way is their floor. So um, in the pegboard study, you kind of find these ver uh, vertical stripes. And then on the chicken wire, the, the globules are sort of vertically uh, elongated. So that's kind of similar in the sense that there's a vertical stretch. No, not no? not really. So Okay. So on the on the pegboard the the firing fields are elongated. But on the chicken wire surface, the firing fields go back to being circular. Right. For grid cells. Um the place cells the, the place cells they're a, a little elongated but not not very much like sorry yeah i just i i had a re read of my question and i actually meant comparing the pegboard with the 3d lattice map so was it slightly elongated there the globules ah okay um so the the place fields in the lattice maze were um yes they were slightly elongated um um place but place fields typically are um elongated if um, if the animal is near to boundaries, then um, we often see that there's elongation along the boundary. Um, they were slightly elongated in the volumetric lattice maze, and that elongation followed the um, followed the structure of the maze. So when we tilted the maze um, so that it was kind of standing on a point, um, then we saw that the elongation of the fields followed followed that. So the fields were basically aligned with the um corridors if you like that that mm. run through the maze so there's definitely there is definitely a, an effect of um maze structure on on places so um, just to play devil's advocate you wouldn't say this has something to do with sort of ecological niche and sort of the resol resolution they work at for example one could make the case that okay it's less natural for rats to navigate upwards and therefore they need a um, elongation means that it's less resolved, so they 
differentiate on a coarser scale going upwards, and therefore you find the elongation in both of those. Yes, I mean it, it's it's hard to separate ecological niche from um, just the parameters of the experiment mm. because those because both of those things are constrained by the um, the, the body capabilities of, of the animal. Yeah. You know, you do a different experiment with a bat than you do with a rat because bats can fly and rats can't, mm. and, and their ecologies are different for the same reason. Um, so when you get a difference in, in encoding between two situations, it's a complicated question to say, is this because of the ecological niche of the animal or is it experimental setup? Because both of those things are confounded, if you if you see what I mean. And so, for example, when we first you know presented the elongated fields on the board, people said, well, that's because rats have never climbed. Um, and so we... To, to get around that objection, we we then raised our animals in a um, in a big three dimensional cage, huge aviary, so that they had plenty of climbing experience. But I, I never really thought that that was the explanation, <laughs> because like I said before, that our rats had never walked across a two meter wide open space either. They'd always spent their lives prior to that time in little cages, and yet the first time they did that, grid cell knew exactly what to do. Um, so I th think these things are hardwired, and I think that the this wiring happened a long time ago in evolution, um, and I'm sure ecological niche probably plays a part. So I think when we look at more species, we, we will start to see some differences, but there, there will also be some commonalities. So whatever the fundamental function of these cells is, um, that will have survived however many million years of evolution and still be present in, in these different um types of animal. So, that, I mean, that's one of the reasons that I think that compar comparative studies are so important, because it's possible when you only study one species, it's possible to really go down a rabbit hole and to spend a lot of time exploring a phenomenon that seems interesting. But if that phenomenon is just a quirk of that particular species, you haven't necessarily learned anything very important. Whereas... Mm. If your phenomenon is present in another species that diverged from your one hundreds of millions of years ago, <laughs> then it's really fundamental. And, and you know, we want to mm. we want to understand the fundamentals before we want to understand the the wrinkles and the bells and whistles. Yeah, the common ancestor ancestor of mammals and birds is three hundred and thirty or fifty million years ago, right? Um, and then recently in uh, January, the lab of Dmitry Arnov. They studied tufted titmouse, which are not um, a mouse, mice, but it's a food catching bird. And they had a setup where they these um, titmice were dashing around on a 2D plane, so they were navigating 2D. But you did find this these multi-field cells, which, like the bats, the sort of local ordering, so not just random, but also globally dysregular, so not really grid cells, and sort of you've been saying that it's sort of about um, the locomotor constraints of what the animal is doing. Um, is it now that you kind of find similar firing in an animal that is doing locomotor activity of um, as a rat walking in 2D, but can fly in 3D, so maybe their sort of self-organizing principles in terms of the neurodynamics might reflect something, uh, a system that can fly, like what do you make of that in terms of constraints? Um, well, so, I mean, the, the bats can also walk and fly. Um, mm, yeah. And we saw the, you know, the irregular 3D, um, very similar pattern, you know, in, in both the bats and the right. rats. 
Um, and I think that it's sort of interesting that now we have, you know, a third species. And as you say, it's, it's very different to, to diverge a long time ago. Um, and, and we're also seeing blobbiness, but we're not seeing the regularity. So that's, that reinforces mm. my belief that it's the blobbiness mm. that's important about the firing and not the um, not the regularity of the pattern. Uh, we also see irregular um, patterns you know, quite often, even, even actually in, in rats exploring a wide open space homogeneously, sometimes you'll, you'll get a distorted grid. If the environment is cluttered or irregular in any way, then the, the regularity also breaks down. So so I, I think fundamentally it's the blobbiness that's important. And and I think we, we need to be thinking about why. Like why um, why does the brain want to have these locations that are spatially um, stable that are separated, representationally speaking, from from the surrounding. Like, what is the computational um, value of that? Because we're now seeing it in a variety of different species. So it's one of these things that survived a lot of evolution. Seems to be fundamental. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't want to go into this too much, but I think there's this big debate on sort of computational models for this. And there, there's the continuous attractor network, model and uh, oscillatory inference model and then I think there are lots of hybrids but in, in a couple of paper you kind of say that um you think the pattern is kind of a result of self-organization of the dynamics like how do you think about that so I think um I mean self I mean it's clearly self-organizing in some mm. way because yeah. you know the the pattern starts to form um, as the animal enters a new space, and we know that how it's formed is is somewhat constrained by the space, but is also mm. constrained by the internal dynamics. Um, so things like the you know the speed of movement of the animal and and all of this kind of stuff. So there's a there's a convergence of these two types of information: this kind of internal information and external information. Um, and there just seem to be these constraints. So you know the the constraint that once a cell has um, identified a, a region where it wants to fire, if you want to put it like that, <laughs> then it doesn't want to fire in the region around that. So if you have all of these different cells and, and they and they're all operating with, with these inputs and these constraints, what what comes out of that when it when it everything's you know when all the dust is settled, as it were, um, is, is this blobby pattern. Um, and you know there are lots of self-organizing systems where where you have similar things. You have um, an internal predisposition. So, for example, crystallization of, of mm. molecules. You have the, um, the the internal information, which is the structure of the molecule and the distribution of its electric charge around it, um, and the um, the environment that it's in, what other molecules are around, what container it's in, and all of that kind of stuff. And the and the end result will be a kind of a reconciling of all of those different things. Um, and you know, when, chris when when chemicals crystallize, sometimes they'll form very regular crystals sometimes they'll form disordered crystals sometimes they'll form um not not a crystalline state at all it'll be a, um, a non-crystalline solid so the same molecule can do these different things and i think that's what we're saying with the grid cells you know um given certain environmental conditions the conditions are such that they're able to, to crystallize their pattern in a regular way if you like um but once you start adding a few more um factors into the mix then then the regularity is less likely yeah you, you were just talking about the role of speed and this idea that well you integrate 
over speed uh, and time, then you somehow get distance. And um, we, before we were recording, we we're talking about some crow experiments I want to do where you have these abstract spaces where the animal not necessarily moves physically in terms of speed. And then if you look at these studies like the RNF 2017, where uh, one is navigating in the abstract space, where one is just like moving around the frequency, uh, the, the frequency of a sound is changing over time, then one is not really moving, right? Um, and the vestibular system is involved in this sort of speed tracking. If one is uh, navigating in an abstract space, uh, well, A, maybe how might the vestibular system be involved? And is, like, does, if, if, is, is speed kind of, well, two questions, I suppose. Could an animal that is not moving kind of form a sort of, um, a grid cell pattern for a room if just by observing it like how important is moving around the space and two how does speed and the idea of navigation translate into these abstract spaces where an animal might actually not move um yeah yeah so hard, hard questions hmm. to answer so um so yeah i've i've so just taking the um the non-spatial dimensions first like like the aronov mm. experiment where they they had a continuously varying tone um i i was bothered by that same question like what's the velocity signal in that mm. um because with place cells you know we know that they are getting a lot of speed information and if you um corrupt that speed information you um do affect the place cells um but there's some really nice work from um, John O'Keefe's lab. So Guifen Chen looked at um, what happens if you decouple um, the various signals that signal speed. So she had a kind of a um, a treadmill where you could vary the speed and you could vary the um, sort of the relationship of the visual world to the locomotor effort. Of so the it was animal. a VR setup. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and. Um, and she showed that there are there are some place cells that are getting more uh, locomotor signals, and there are some cells that don't really care about that and just care about vision and so on and so on. So mm. the different cells getting different kinds of information. Mm. So um, now it's quite possible that different species do differ in, the, in this regard, you know, for really ecological as well as a, mm. um, as well as an experimental setup um, paradigm. So there may so there may be dif differing requirements for a speed signal depending on the nature of the animal. And as you say, that you know, there's some possibility that some animals could recover um, a spatial signal just by exploring with their eyes, not having to move physically through a space. That's still an open question, I think. Um, I think it is possible. Um, and I haven't made up my mind about this yet, but I think it is possible that the place cells um are not just about movement through physical space, but are also about movement through other spaces. Um, now, whether it's any kind of other continuous space or whether the only other space that place cells are interested in is time, um, mm. which was kind of involved in the Aronoff experiment because the, you know, the, the tone varied across um, time as well. So um, there was a temporal component there, um, although, you know, I mean, it's com it's complex. They they tried to factor that out, but it's, it's still, I think it's possible that the time was was playing in there. But you know, if we could explore other stimulus dimensions, for example, color, and that's something that you could do with crows because mm. um, they have color vision. Um, if you could find place cells that responded to certain parts of of a, a color spectrum, for example, 
um, then I think that would be very interesting. And I think that that would tell us that the speed signal is not um, is not a critical part. It's not an obligatory part of this process. It's It just helps the place cells. Um, alternatively, it may turn out that the place cells, they really only care about spatiotemporal parameters. So I think that it's waiting to be answered to that question. And mm. um, it would be great if somebody would, would t take it on. <laughs> yeah, lots of work to be done. Um, yeah. So in a 2015 sort of more theoretical paper, you talk about some of the challenges that would come with doing 3D space presentation. And I don't think we have to go into the, these problems because they're quite technical, but you have this point that one solution might be that actually you don't encode a 3D space, but you can encode loads of local 2D manifolds that are then stitched together by the retrospinal cortex or some other region. Do you, I think you have some work with head direction where you kind of make the case for that. Would that also be a possibility for grid cells? Um, yes, I think so. You mean for walking over a surface I <clears throat> as opposed to moving through a volume? Yes, sort of in a sense that you have different, like you might have a plane that is sort of at a um, different angle. So you have a plane that is directly horizontal, then that one has a 45 degree angle, like a diagonal, those of one in between, and somehow all of these planes are added together and then they make up the volumous space. So I, I think... I don't think you can add up the pattern on a plane and get a volumetric pattern. So, mm -hmm. so our evidence is that on a on a horizontal horizontal surface you get the kind of canonical grid pattern. Yeah. On the on vertical surface you get um, a very expanded pattern. We're not even sure if it's regular because it's so expanded that we can only see mm -hmm. one or two fields at a time. Yeah. Um, there's no there's no pattern in a volume that could explain both of those patterns on those two surfaces, if you see what I mean, because they're inconsistent with each other. You've got a bunch of small fields on the floor and a small right. yeah. fields on the yeah. floor, so isn't, there isn't yeah. one right. pattern that could be the <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. projection of. So um, so I think that's already telling us that there's, there's a kind of a manifold going on when the animal's walking over a surface. Um, and, and we did actually try recording in between as well. We got up to 40 degrees, which is the steepest that we could get rats to climb on. Um, mm. And it just looked like the same pattern that we see on the floor. It didn't mm. didn't look like it was starting to transect um, a volumetric pattern, you know, at a different angle. So, um, so I think that definitely the grid cells are forming this kind of surface pattern if the animal is on a surface. The head di direction cells... I'm less sure in my mind about that. So we do have mm. quite a lot of evidence that it's also kind of a manifold, like a flat compass, um, and, and that compass is kind of pasted onto the surface that the, the rat is on, if you like. Um, but we also have some evidence that's just coming out of my lab now that um, that actually there is also um, a volumetric component. So the, the, the angle of the head in three-dimensional space um, is a stronger determinant of the direction of firing than the um, the surface, the the, um, the angle of the head relative to the surface that the animal is on. If you, if you me. Um, there's some evidence from um, Jean Laurent and Dora Angelaki that, that in a volumetric space in, in mice, they, they had some evidence that there is um, some volumetric encoding, but it's not a um, a fully three-dimensional volumetric coding. It's it's more like a modulated two-dimensional one. 
so there's, there's various d- different pieces of evidence coming along. The picture is complicated. Hmm. And my feeling is the reason it's complicated is that actually it's one of these situations where uh, it depends on the setting and the information available to the animal and that the brain is just working with the best information it has at the time. <laughs> and mm. if an animal is flying through a space, it's just got different information from if it's walking over a surface and um, it's it's attending to different cues, it's got different problems to solve, um, and there's different locomotor signals available and so on. So the, the pattern um, can be very different. So I think I'm moving away from the idea that I used to have that there's kind of a canonical representation of space that these cells are accessing Mm. when an animal moves through space. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think that the reputation, the reputation, the, uh, the, the firing pattern of the cells, the representation, that's what I was looking for, um, is, is just kind of cobbled together on the fly for the animal's immediate needs. You know, it'll make do as it were. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I mentioned the retrospinal cortex maybe doing some of the stitching together. Do you think even like prefrontal regions could be involved in this or is yes. it more log? Okay, interesting. Yeah, I th- I can, quite possibly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Open question on, on where yeah. this is together. Yeah. yeah. I, I kind of want to go back to the spatial umwelt with rats, bats and humans. So because humans, or let's skip bats, rats and humans. Um, rats and humans both kind of navigate on 2D planes, but we stand upright. Rats um, have their axes kind of um, from front to back, right? We have it bottom to top. So how much does that difference matter in terms of thinking about 3D space? Well, so rats and humans and, and bats and, and mm-hmm. all the animals, really. I mean, our heads are all horizontal. Yeah, yeah. They? Um, and animals work really hard to keep it that way. Um, there's some really beautiful video from the Ulanovsky lab showing a flying bat and it's mm. swooping and turning and, <laughs> and all of this kind of stuff, but its head is absolutely horizontal. Yeah. Um, you know, fish, I mean, they go up and down, but they, they, they tend to be upright. They don't go upside down very often. So, um, so I think, you know, we evolved in a, in a world where gravity is a very strong uh, polarizing cue. And I think that, that has the same effect on on pretty much all of all of the vertebrates anyway um, in terms of representation yeah um so you have a paper on symmetry and could we could you just kind of define what uh, translational and rotational symmetry are yeah so symmetry um that's kind of a mathematical term for um for something that um remains the same under some type of transformation. So if you think of a snowflake, if you rotate um, a snowflake 60 degrees around the mm. center of that pattern, it'll look the same. It, yeah. it has a, a six-fold rotational symmetry. Um, if you had you know, identical snowflakes side by side, you could slide one along. Mm. Um, the width of the snowflake and it would look the same so you wouldn't be able to tell so that's a translational symmetry Mm. um with a snowflake you you also have a mirror symmetry you could pick snowflake up flip it over and put it back down Mm. and it would look the same so it also has a mirror symmetry um so symmetries i mean they 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 attract us as humans we we kind of like the patterns of symmetries and we've been attracted by the symmetries that we see in the in the spatial code and so Mm. so i did some sort of musing about space and symmetry and um, the symmetry in the code and what that's um, 
for, if it's for anything. Um, and also the many ways in which the brain is really having to break symmetries in order uh, to enable adaptive behavior. It needs to know what um, what differences are between things rather than what the, you know, yeah. the similarities are. I suppose the reason why you um, take that the grid-like pattern is not canonical, is so unpopular, is because we really would like the sort of symmetry because it looks nice, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there was this paper where you found that grids. Um, so if there's an order change in the environment, but all the spatial cues stay the same, the grids translate, but they do not rotate. So there's a translational symmetry, but not rotational symmetry. Like, what do you make of that dissociation? So I um. I'm slightly puzzled by it, <laughs> but I but I do have a, a hypothesis about what's happening, um, because as I said earlier, there's now like quite a lot of um, evidence that the grids are receiving information coming back from the place cells, and we know that when uh, we make those changes that we made in that experiment, we change the um, the environment from black to white, or you change it from lemon smelling to vanilla smelling or whatever, we know that that causes what's called remapping in place cells. So they mm. all reorganize that they're firing, that they fire in different places or they don't fire at all, or they start firing when they weren't, or you know, whatever. The whole everything looks different. Um, so I think that what's happening there is that the, the head direction system has not been affected by those changes because we haven't changed any of the directional land. So that input to the grid cells is still the place cell feedback pattern has changed. And so that's um, driving the cells to fire in, in slightly different places. So it's causing the grid to shift over a bit without rotating. So, um, and, and whether that feeds back to the place cells. So, you know, there is also an argument that the um, that the slight change in the grids is actually why the place cells rematched. But I think that's less likely because I think from you know, and we didn't have a huge amount of data, but from what we did see, when grids translated, they all did so together. So if the if the grids are driving the place cells, then you would have expected the effect on the place cells to be just for them to shift their fields over a little bit. So I think what we, for the fact that they actually reorganize and completely change suggests that that's the big response and that that's feeding back to the grid cells. Yeah, um, maybe we could link this to, are, are you familiar with um, Ken Cheng's uh, purely geometric module? This is a paper from the 86. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Could you talk us through that? Yeah, that was an experiment. Um, it, it was also kind of looking at symmetry breaking. Um, mm -hmm. And it was a behavioral experiment that, that caused some surprise at the time because um, it seemed to violate kind of behaviorism. So, so behaviorism... Um, which was really dominant for the first half of last century, says that um, animals build up knowledge by forming associations between stimuli and, and rewards in the environment. So in the um, Chang experiment, animals were placed in a rectangular environment that was covered with sand, and, mm. and hidden in that environment was, um, was food that they had to kind of dig for. And, and it was... Um, because it was a rectangular environment, the geometry has a twofold symmetry. So you mm. could take a rectangular environment, if you took the rat out, rotated that environment 180 degrees and put the rat back, the rat wouldn't know, right? Because it looks exactly mm. the same. Um, so just going by the geometry alone, um, the animal 
um, there, are, there are two places in the environment that would look exactly the same to the animal. So if the animal had learned that the food was near uh, one of the corners, if you took the rat out and then put it back in, it wouldn't know which of the two corners to search and it should search yeah. in both of them. So to break the symmetry, they um, they put panels on the corners, the four corners of the rectangle that looked different. So black, white, striping, whatever. You know. mm. um, so according to behaviorism, there's now a unique combination of stimuli in the corner where the food is. So there's the geometry that, that, mm-hmm. that kind of signals two places in that space, but then there's this unique colored panel, um, which, which should uniquely signal the corner. And so the rats theory should be able to go to the correct corner all the time. But actually what Cheng found is that they distribute their search between the two geometrically equivalent corners. They seem to be disregarding this cue, which behaviorism says should be strongly associated with the food. So to explain that, they proposed that um, that the information about the, the visual panel is actually processed in the brain separately from the geometry. Mm. So the geometry is in uh, what's called a module and that that um, that the spatial decision of the animal was driven by the module um, independently of the of the vision. The module had kind of had control. So that's their paper is called a, a purely geometric module in, in the rats. You know, I forget the rest of it, but you know, for the rat basically. Um, and that was that was a tremendously surprising and, and important um, observation, and it generated a lot of um, a lot of behavioral experiments and, and you know thinking and, and so on. Um, I think now, and in fact, I wrote a paper about this a few years ago, saying mm. that, that now that we know about head direction cells and place cells, I think the explanation um, is that the the animal. Um, so there's there's two ways that the animal could be learning the task. It could be learning to go to the corner that has the panel behind it, but it could be learning to go to the northwest corner, let's say. Hmm. And you, so using this, and, and I'm using north and, and west kind of, you know, I, I don't mean literally north and west, but I mean, yeah. you know, um, given the global um, directional reference frame for that apparatus, yeah. <laughs> let go to that corner. Let's call it northwest for the sake of mm-hmm. argument. So it's learning go to the northwest corner. Um and then it has to learn a second thing. How do I know it's the northwest corner? And you've got two sources of information. You've got the geometry and you've got the, the panels. But you also have a third, which is actually the internal sense of direction of the rat. Hmm. So if you didn't have the panels there and you just put the rat into that environment, head direction cells have the geom- geometry to help them um, align the, their activity in that environment um but but that's all they have and so they might align themselves one way or they might align themselves the other way you don't know Mm. on any given trial um the rat's a bit disoriented when it's placed in there so the head direction system doesn't know which of the two directions to fire so it's going to guess one way or the other Mm. um now if you put the panels back into the equation if the animal's got quite a strong sense of direction from the perspective of the animal, it's placed into this rectangular box. It thinks that that's the northwest corner. And sometimes there's a black panel there and sometimes there's a white panel there. <laughs> so from the point of view of the animal, the panel's not very informative about which way it's mm. facing. Yeah. So since it's only got geometry, um, it's going to have to guess. So so my interpretation of what the rats were doing is they got placed into this environment. They had learned that um, sometimes northwest is over there 
Well, there's t- actually there's, there's two possible things they might have learned. They might have learned sometimes Northwest is over there and sometimes it's the other way. I don't know which which way it is. It's one of those two. Mm. So I'm just going to guess. Mm. Um, and so in that formulation, they have this strong belief that the food is always in the Northwest corner, but they don't know which is the Northwest corner. The other possibility is that the rats have learned um, I don't know, like sometimes this food is in the northwest corner and sometimes it's in the southeast corner. I never know from one one day to the other. So there's actually two uncertainties in the mind of the rat. One is I'm not fully sure which is the northwest corner. I'm going to have to guess. And the second one is I don't know whether in this particular trial the food is going to be in the northwest or the southeast. So in other words, now that we know about the internal representation of space, We've got away from the behavior behaviorist idea that knowledge is all about just associations between stimulus mm. and rewards. We now know that there are all of these other layers. There's um, and they're not necessarily rewarded. So the head direction cells aren't rewarded for firing in a particular direction. They just do. They're they're designed to just, you know, make links between what the rat can see and and what direction uh, they think it's facing, and to learn these connections and so on and so on. So I think things like the discovery of place cells and head direction cells are one of the big things that pushed us away from behaviorism to thinking much mm. more, uh, thinking in a much more cognitive way about how animals are solving these tasks. And um, and seen in that light, the, the Cheng results are really unsurprising. You know, <laughs> um, there's no mystery to solve, really. You know, the system just had ambiguous information. Yeah, I'm not sure I've got this part through, but let me just go for it. So um part of so they call this idea that it's purely a geometric module which where the head direction system doesn't care about the color or the stripes of the wall as sort of this informational encapsulation so you you don't necessarily find that information relevant or you can't necessarily share information across these modules that's right um, although they weren't talking about head direction cells back then because they weren't right yeah they were yeah true um but kind of going back to this idea of all the role that these navigation cells play in generalization and then thinking about the odor example where because odor in a way goes beyond navigation and you found that grids translate but they do not rotate so i'm wondering here again in the um, uh, cheng work it's about rotation right but if you had a setup where you somehow had translation so i don't know somehow the um, rewards are shifted to the right and then um, maybe there's um, a blue wall that is at the point where it's shifted. I mean, okay, that that, that might just be sort of associated with where is the blue wall then. But I don't, I don't know whether you could think of a setup where you somehow do the Cheng experiment with a uh, translation, not rotation. And would you then maybe find that for translation, you have inform- informational unencapsulation. So somehow that generalizes because maybe the head direction system is more inform- informationally encapsulated, but something like translation is maybe more general. Um, I'm not, not sure I fully understood. So um, so, the, so getting back to encapsulation. So I think mm. the, the encapsulation was to explain the behavior. Mm-hmm. And I think in some senses, what we've kind of done when we've discovered head direction cells is we've kind of explained that encapsulation, if you see what yeah. I mean. Yeah. Um, the reason for the encapsulation is that the head direction system wasn't being uh, informed by the um, panels. Yeah. 
Um, and we've now done um, lots of experiments to show that um, whether or not the head direction system becomes informed by these landmarks depends a lot on the um, experience and initial conditions and so on. Yeah. Whether the because the brain has to if it's going to use those panels to inform its head direction system, it has to know that they're stable. And how does it know that they're stable? It uses its head direction system. <laughs> so there's a chicken and egg problem for when an animal is first setting up its its representation of that space. Um, and so I think what happened in, in things like the Chang experiment is that, is that the conditions just didn't allow the head direction system to trust, trust those landmarks. Um, what would happen if you had a translational um, version of the same thing so um so let's say yeah i'd have to i'd have to sit down and, and work my way through it you had something that's always at the same end of the box but sometimes on the left or sometimes on the right depending on the cues it's very hard mm. to get away from the head direction system because it breaks the symmetry like it, it mm. it's it's really important role for space is to break symmetries mm. um and it's always functioning so you know um and the other thing that breaks the symmetry is just your visual you know your retina um distinguishes left from right so for example you know you could have a reinforcement that's always at, at just at one end of a box and sometimes on the left and sometimes on the right but you your brain always can tell left from right because we have a, a bilateral symmetry um to our bodies so i can't think off the top of my head of a translational analog of of that experiment <laughs> yeah um, so let's go back to grid cells then. Um, the symmetry you find in the in, in grid cells in the rectangular non three D um, setups. Um, what does that tell you about? So in in the symmetry paper, you you said that this could be related generalization. Maybe it's somehow more efficient because for long distances you don't have to can kind of uh, you don't have to if you go a really long distance you don't have to sort of accumulatively uh, add more and more distance, but somehow the symmetry uh, is able to compute that easier. Or maybe I think what you argue for is that it's more of a byproduct. So, like, what what does the symmetry tell you in terms of function? Um, yes. So, uh, yes, I, I, like I said before, don't don't think that there is a function. Of, mm. of the symmetry. I, I do think it's a byproduct. So mm. we have a slight tendency um it's just a, a cognitive bias i guess that we have to um to see purpose in, in the things that we discover in mm. biology in a way that we don't in, in non-biological systems so if we look at crystals in a rock we would never say what's the function of that beautiful yeah. crystal <laughs> we right. just say, what a beautiful crystal how did that form so mm. we look at the the why of the formation but we don't look at we don't have a kind of a teleological kind of but when we come to biology, we 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 tend to assume that things have a function. Um, but I think often they are just byproducts. You know, I, I think sometimes things are just a byproduct of something else. You know, it's now it's very likely that grid cells have a function mm. because they've persisted um, in evolution. They're expensive to maintain. They cost a lot of energy. You know, to, to keep things um, going. So. That that suggests that there's a, a teleological function, like that an adaptive function. Um, but the symmetry of the pattern doesn't 
necessarily have to have a function. It could be just telling us something about the underlying structure. The actual mm. function might be something else. Um, so that's what I think. Any ideas how it could be a byproduct? Sorry? Like like if, if the, um, the, the gridness is a thing, right? So it's a byproduct of something else that might be related to the function. What do you think it could be a byproduct of? So I think it could be a byproduct of the fact that the cells want to form these blobs. Like they, mm. they want to um, fire in discrete regions of space, but not in the regions around those. Because that just seem, that seems to be something that persists through all of these different experiments and across all of these different species. It's the discreteness. So they have the mm. function of um, discretizing space, I think. Um, but why? Like, why would you want to discretize space? I mean, you could think of some possible reasons. So, you know, for example, um, you may want memories to be attached to one location in a space and not a different one. Um, It may be about something to do with plasticity. So we know that place cells are, are really plastic. They're constantly acquiring um, new connections. So it might be that um, a place cell, when it starts to acquire connections and, and its place field expands a little bit, and now the cell fires in a larger region than before and it's exposed to new stimuli and it tries to create connections to those and grows further. You know, it may be to interrupt, you know, to create a kind of a fire break, if you like, to, to stop place cell place fields from getting too large. So so that's one possibility that I think might be that there might be for. Um for just stopping memories from interfering with each other. Yeah, I I, I don't know. I, mm. I think it's a very interesting question. Yeah. Um I in a second I want to talk about entropy. A any final words on okay, let's put it this way. What do you think really uh, is missing in the grid cell work? that um, could kind of, I guess you were just talking about so that two memories don't interfere with each other. Like what, what approaches have we really not tried and that'd be interesting for understanding grid cells or multi-field cells? You, well, you want me to give away all my, my um, <laughs> secrets? Yes, <laughs> my yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so, I mean, the two questions are how do they come to form their fields and what are those for, I guess, broadly mm. speaking. Um, And in the how do they come to form their fields, I, I think we don't really yet know. So, so we know we do know that there are these um, that these inputs. So, for example, self-motion signals, locomotion, mm -hmm. and optic flow, and, and, and so on. We know that those signals are important for uh, the spacing of fields. We know that boundaries are important. Um, but why does why does the pattern establish itself from the get-go in the way that it does? Like, what is it that um, determines the initial, the very initial conditions that that um, a cell starts out with. Is that just random? Um, so that's that's the one thing. But I, but I think that the more important and interesting question is the the other one. Like, what are they for? Mm. Um, and there, I think we've got a lot of work to do to understand. Is it just about space? So there's some mm. suggestion coming along now that it might be for non-spatial cognitive domains, very much like with the place cells that we were talking about before, how they They seem sometimes to have um, their patterns in, in a non-spatial cognitive domain. I'm not 100% convinced about that yet. I'm, I'm not convinced by any of those experiments that it's it's not the case that the place cells were kind of trying to use space to solve this otherwise really difficult task. <laughs> so I think there's, a, there's more work to do to show that this really is domain specific to, to spatiotemporal um, space. 
Um, and then what, like why are, are they doing this? Why are they discretizing these spaces in this way? What's the computational um, benefit of this? Um, and although, you know, I don't think that there is always an explanation for phenomena. I do think it's likely that there is an explanation for the discreteness just because mm. we, we do see it so widespread. So, yeah, but I I haven't thought about how to ask those questions yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to when you have the answers for all of us. <laughs> that could um, be your job. <laughs> uh, maybe. You're Let's starting see. out, right? So yeah, give, give me 20 years. Uh, <laughs> um yeah, let's let's talk about the entropy work with uh, Carlo Rovelli, mm. uh, a physicist. And um, so, but as a neuroscientist, how do you think about entropy? And I hope it's not particles in a box. <laughs> yeah, well, so I mean, so so I th I think about it in a really naive way. I'm I'm not even much of a computational neuroscientist, and and I I, I quickly go off the you know deep end of my understanding when I. Um, when I start thinking about things like um, information and entropy and so on, but we got um, we got sort of talking about this. We were at a discussion meeting together that that had been organised by Yuri Buzaki, and the idea of it was to bring physicists and neuroscientists together to talk about their shared interest in space. What was the name of the meeting? Is it is it like available somehow recorded or something oh, like that? I don't think so. No, oh, it, was bad. Oh. it was a carefully oh. um, meeting, and it was really to to generate ideas i think mm. um and and my talk was and my, my talk was on the third day so there are all these luminaries here i have to admit i had been sitting there wondering why i'd been invited because there were all these nobel laureates and then there was me you know um and i was on the third day so day one was physicists and day two was the bulk of the neuroscientists and then day three was um some some more neuroscientists and, and discussion basically so so i slightly felt like um most of the stuff that i might have wanted to talk about had already been discussed by days one and two and i'd gone along thinking well i've been working on space you know grid cells i've got this interesting 3d data blah 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 um and so but by the end of the first day we'd had some really interesting talks from people like carlo Rivelli, um and um Sean, and I've just blanked on his Carol. name. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> blanked on his name because I suddenly realized it's being recorded and I and I panicked. <laughs> so Carlo Rivelli and, and Sean Carroll, and, and they've been talking about how they've been thinking about space and the evolution of the universe um, and the fact that it's constantly expanding and what, what does that mean for the future um, and how entropy seemed to start off um, unusually low, inexplicably low, hmm. um, but it was unfolding according to the inexorable laws of thermodynamics and was increasing and blah, 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 blah. So they yeah. talked about all of that. And I was sitting there thinking, this is really interesting, it's fascinating, but what has it got to do with neuroscience? Hmm. And then day two was all the place cells and grid cells and, and how cool and blah, 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 blah. And I thought, yeah, still cool to me, but <laughs> what's that got to do with entropy in the universe? Yeah. Um. And so, that, so those two things were feeding into my thinking. And then the third thing was that I had um, started to become really concerned about the climate crisis, like mm. um, existentially worried about the climate crisis. I had um, I had seen the the, 19, the, the 2018 um, IPCC report. Um, a lot of people were starting to make a noise about it. Extinction Rebellion, this protest group, had formed, and I, I had joined with them, and I was... Um, doing the public engagement um, 
with them sort of produced a, a, a talk explaining the, the climate crisis and why people needed to, to get active and, and start doing something and so on. So this was really heavily on my mind that um, we need to start talking about the climate crisis. Um, and that kind of, you know, kind of wove together in my mind the strands of the inexorable death of the universe, <laughs> um, which is a kind of big existential question, and space, the environment, and all of this kind of stuff. And um, so I so I sat up all that night. Late into that night, I tr completely trashed my talk that I was going to give about grid cells um, and, and just generated a, a completely new talk that sort of said, basically, you know, I, I don't um, – I don't fully understand how it is that our very, very complex nervous systems have evolved under the influence of entropy, because mm -hmm. entropy seems to be kind of trying to take things apart. It's, it's creating disorder. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew, you know, because it, any sort of scientist knows that um, that life is not violating the second law of thermodynamics. So, mm. so you know, life is increasing entropy because we take in mm. so much energy to, to do what mm. we do um, that we create far more disorder around us <laughs> yeah. than, than the order that we create when we've evolved and grown and so on. I mean, you know, I did know that, but still I didn't have a mental handle on why complexity um, ar has arisen in the universe, what's driving that. Mm. Um, and I got sort of so, so so I in my talk I sort of laid this all out. Um, this is the puzzle, and I talked about how evolution um, is is this drive towards ever increasing complexity. You know, we started off really small. Um, there have been a, a few extinctions along the way, mass extinctions, but by and large, um, evolution has has driven complexity. It's gone gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and we humans are incredibly complex. If you look at us. In the context of the, of our cities and our computers and all the rest of it, we are, you know, possibly the most complex thing that the universe has ever seen. So, what's driving that? You know, mm -hmm. um, and then I said, and I drew on Sean Carroll's talk where he had shown that complexity um, increases in the universe, and it's something to do with the ability of um, of matter and energy in the universe to interact with itself. And he showed um, that complexity will peak and then it will decline. So at some point in the future, things are going to become less complex. They're going to start to break apart again and you know everything's going to drift apart, all the stars will drift apart and eventually all particles will drift apart and everything will be dead. <laughs> um, so, I, so I kind of sort of talked about all of this. I, I presented the puzzle of, you know, I understand that complexity increases, but I don't understand why. Um, and also that we, um, that complexity has the capacity to push us into different states of being, some of which are less complex. Um, and, and I talked about the mass extinctions, and I pointed to the fact that we are in the midst of orchestrating another mass extinction, and one possible endpoint of that is we've completely reduced our complexity to nothing. Kind of thing. So, so that was so I kind of wove the climate crisis in. You know, mm -hmm. Um, so, so I, I just talked about that, and I said, you know, so I want you physicists. You're here, like we're here to talk. Explain to me. And so afterwards, we had some really good conversations. Sean and I had some good conversations, and and um, and Carla and I had some really good um, conversations. Um, and so Sean asked me to do um, a Mindscape podcast with him, mm -hmm. where I presented my, um, you know, dumb biologist, you know, mystification. I'm. I'm not fully sure I got clarity on the answer, but I sort of sort of think I do. <laughs> sometimes and sometimes I go away and I don't think about it for a while and then I forget again. It's it it is quite complex why complexity um arises. 
Um, and then with Carlo, you know, we had some good com- conversations too. And he, um, and he, I, I guess the revelation from those conversations for me was he said mm. that we think of entropy as disorder, um, but it's not that. Because, and then he gave some examples of um, of simple physical systems where um, that become more orderly, even though entropy is increasing. For example, if you mix oil and water, water together, the oil will separate out and sit on the top of the water. So it's become more structured and more ordered, but it has more entropy. So if you look at the um, what molecules are doing, they're moving faster. Um, and they've got more energy and so on. So, um, and they're dissipating heat, and that's going into the container. All, all sorts of stuff is going on. So, that, so, so um, entropy has increased, um, but the order has increased, and the and the order is increasing um, because of you know the state of the universe that we happen to be in in this kind of local bit of it. Like we have gravity, so you know gravity pulls molecules apart, and all of those kinds of things. So you kind of can just take that and extrapolate and, and um, add in a few more. Um, complexities, different types of molecules, and then you end up with evolution and life and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so, uh, so, and then we kind of fleshed that out more and we talked about how um, in the process of becoming more complex, we grow the um, the space of action possibilities. So what physicists would call the phase space of, of the system, that you can do more things as you become more complex. Um, and so one of the things you can do is become even more complex, but another thing that you can do is is to kill yourself, you know, <laughs> just punch the bubble, you know, um, and create an extinction or whatever. So um, so you can just get into more trouble. So we tried to kind of formalize this, um, and we wrote a couple yeah. of papers that basically laid out uh, why it, it kind of turns into why does evolution seem to have these big transitions? Why does it drive more and more complexity? Um, why do we have extinctions? And um, and then it finished with where are we headed? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I wanted to talk about this idea you have of sort of meta stable local entropy traps. And I think this also relates to uh, negative entropy, which is, goes all the way back to Schrödinger. Uh, so could you kind of just talk about an, as for an example of a local entropy trap? Yeah. So, so these meta stable states, I don't know if you could call them entropy traps. I suppose they're, they're sort of traps in a way. So they're, um, yeah, they they are kind of um, states that are formed um, as entropy unfolds um, that have, you know, some, some type of order and complexity to them um, that are, are in a kind of a, what you might think of as quite a small phase space. So they're not doing very much. Um, but it doesn't take very much to push that into a different state where there's suddenly a huge um, change and a big increase in entropy. Um, and so an example of that is a tree. You know, a tree is, is kind of formed um, un- under the inexorable influence of spontaneous you know, processes and so on. Um, and it might sit there for a long time and do nothing but just exist and quietly photosynthesize um, but then somebody comes along and lights a match and the tree catches fire and burns down. So it suddenly tips into this new state. So so we kind of drew on the analogy of bubbles to describe these um, action possibilities. So the tree, when it's just kind of sitting there quietly photosynthesizing, is in a bubble and, and it's a fairly small kind of phase space. Um, when you light a match, it's like you punch a, a hole in that bubble and you create a what, what Carla called a channel um, mm. 
for um, for that system to progress through into a very different phase space where there are many different um, action possibilities. The molecules can do a lot more different things because they're not trapped in fibers and leaves and, and so on. Um, so they have many more states that they can be in, which is the, the measure of entropy. You know, the number of different microscopic states for a given macroscopic state is much higher when it's a pile of ash than when it's a when it's a tree. So, so basically, we had had this idea of these um, metastable states, which are these bubbles, small bubbles, um, and then this notion of channels that um, that systems can progress through into uh, different bubbles. Yeah, uh, an evolution, a classical example is the molecule ATP, where I, I suppose the channel would be. Um, sort of breaking the chemical bonds and then uh, energy is released, which is why ATP exists. Like it uh, brings energy to the cell. And then the, uh, this, I guess, larger phase space would be this other remaining molecule, ADB, which then I guess has high entropy. But I kind of, when I was reading about that, I, that kind of reminded me of the idea of memory because in a way for an organism to do certain things, let's say it will need the energy to, I don't know, perform something that's like kind of an elementary operation. And the moment that operation is done, then in a way, the memory of what could, what could be done with that uh, is released. And in a way, I think of it as sort of the, when the channel is opened, the memory is lost and all the, in a way, the structure, okay, I call it local entry, maybe let's call it metastable states. In a way, those are memories that are transient until the channels are opened. And with complexity, you have increasing more and more uh, hierarchical metastable states. A memory is a metastable state. Mm. That's a, yeah, that's a, that's a nice way of looking at it. And then um, retrieving a memory is opening a channel. Yeah, to, yeah. yeah. The action possibilities. Yeah, so, I mean, the problem with this analogy is that It doesn't really have a precise formulation in, in mm. physicist terms. It, it's it's kind of a cognitive. It's to help us sort of think about these things. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think you're exactly getting um, at the, at that concept. The, the idea that you've got something that's uh, that's stored, and while it's stored, it's not doing anything interesting. But the <clears throat> the possibilities of what you can do with that thing are um, tremendously varied and and interesting. Yeah. So I've been reading um, after listening to that podcast episode with you and, uh, and Sean. I've been uh, reading a lot about physics and uh, especially the phenomenological era of time. So the the sense that for us um, time flows from the past to the future, uh, although uh, the kind of block universe models would uh, say that well we shouldn't somehow that arrow doesn't necessarily exist. Um, and then I've been reading about, because we're talking about entropy types and I suppose uh, this idea of like negative entropy and irreversibility. And I, I was wondering how does all of this kind of fit into the perception of time as passing from the past and the future in terms of the, if we can at least conceptually think about metastability as memory, like how, how does, because memory and, uh, Memory seems like the essential ingredient for agents to think that the past is different than the future, right? Uh, how does it all fit together? I'm yeah, trying to yeah. figure it out. I, yeah. I don't know. I, I've I've thought about this quite a lot, and I haven't really come to an answer. So, 
I mean, I, I struggle with the notion that the arrow of time is bidirectional. <laughs> hmm. um, but, you know, the physicists say that, that it is. I mean, or, or at least that, that, that has... It has an apparent directionality because of the asymmetry between um, entropy of the past and entropy of the future. So, in other words, time, time, and and the direction of entropy are basically the same thing. Um, and yet, you know, like you say, we remember the past, but we don't remember the future. And it feels like there was only one past, but there are multiple futures, mm. um, and or possible multiple possible possible futures that haven't happened yet, um, and. I don't know, I slightly think that's beyond my pay grade <laughs> to come to an answer. I think even the physicists can't decide, you know, mm. have we got sort of multiple universes and actually there are multiple pasts as well as futures, but we can only see one of them type of thing. Um, and also this it's all bound in with consciousness as well, you know, our mm. um, the phenomenological perception that we have a past and a memory of the past and we don't have a – we have a, a prediction of the future, but it's not the same yeah. as – although – Interestingly, the same part of the brain, the hippocampus, you know, does seem to be involved in uh, thinking about the future as well as thinking about the past. Mm. So, so who knows? Um, but yes, yes. So, so I don't know where time fits into all of this. I do think that the question of time and um, the place in grid cell systems is quite interesting. Yeah. Um, in a couple of episodes ago, I talked with Sarah Robbins about the memory equals imagination or doesn't equal imagination thing um yeah let's let's i've got some sort of final um questions mm -hmm. um career advice for young researchers uh what what do you recommend what's important oh um so i think think very carefully about your questions so <laughs> like the conversation we had at the beginning mm, yeah um I don't think we're very good at teaching this. Like we, we mm. put students into labs and say, here's an experiment, go and do it. And I feel that we're not very good at saying, how do you know what of the 100 million experiments that could be done, how many of them should you do? Um, because just just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. Um, mm. And then it gets back to um, why, why are we doing this? We're not just trying to find out what things there are in the world. We're trying to understand the things in the world. Like, you know, we don't want to just know all of the fossils that there are, for example. We want to understand why are those fossils there? They're, well, they're there because, you know, there were these animals there in the past. Why were they there in the past? And how, why are they different now? And, you know, so it's always about why questions. So so always when you're doing an experiment, think, what why question am I going to have answered with this experiment? So that's, that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is keep your questions really simple. Because yeah. like I was saying, um, the biggest mistake that I see people make when they start out is they do something that's just way too complicated. Um, and even the simple questions turn out to be surprisingly interesting when you when you really mm. down into it. especially because in our fields, you know, as as biologists interested in, in the brain and mind, it's so complex that even the simple questions turn out um to have answers that you didn't expect, like <laughs> like grid cells. Nobody predicted grid cells. Mm. Um that, that type of thing. So keep it simple. Um, on a more practical level, I would say um, network as much as you can. So um, reach out to other people whose work you're interested in, make yourself known, go up to people in conferences, get get chatting to people, find out who are the uh, decision makers, get to know them. Because although it shouldn't necessarily be like this, it is the case that science is a, it's a social enterprise and people mm -hmm. form social bonds 
you know, if they meet a student who's really interested in, in their work and seems, you know, um, intelligent and, and keen, you know, they'll remember that person when that person applies to come and work with them five years down the line type of thing. So so that type of networking, I think, is really important to to, um, to help build your profile. Um Create a web page. You know, <laughs> think about think about your public profile um, because when you're applying for a job, you want to stand out from other applicants. You want to have something that makes you stand out as a as a real person. Um, uh, stay curious. <laughs> it can be hard sometimes when you're just ground down by the minutiae of, of experiments and writing papers and and you know stuff. But um, curiosity is what what makes this job so interesting. That's that's what you know, what makes up for the low pay is the fact that somebody has given you this, this lab and all this money and said, go and find, you know, follow your nose, ask some interesting questions and and report back what you find type of thing. That's amazing. Um, it really is an amazing career. Um, but people can get demoralized. Mm. Yeah. Um, so you gave a talk on... Um, what neuroscientists can do about climate change. And that was at the uh, BNA 2021, the conference. I actually worked at the BNA the ne following year. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, I, you you had like some slides on kind of lessons from, or not lessons from, but they kind of some slides on kind of dynamical systems theory and the idea like about oscillations and positive feedback loops. And I, I suppose neuroscientists learn about this through their training, but do you have some sort of, take on how that training can help us think about climate change data and um, what to do about it? Yeah, so in terms of understanding climate change data, I don't think there's much to understand, really. You know, sure. we've put a carbon dioxide duvet around the planet and, and all the creatures under that duvet are warming up. You know, it's not, mm. it's not that hard to understand. Mm. I think... Um, so in, in terms of understanding things like tipping points, mm. um, it helps to have had have some understanding of, of just, you know, how how these things can just come out of the blue um, because they are a, a, a worry. I mean, the, the the general progress is worrying, but also the possibility that these tipping points exist, that, that we actually go suddenly go too far and fall off a cliff. Like, for example, we suddenly melt the ice caps much faster than we thought mm. we were going to or something like that. So, um Yeah, but but you know, in terms of um, scientific understanding, I, I, I don't feel that our efforts are best expended in trying themselves are saying we need to stop creating carbon emissions. So, so our job really should be: how do we stop um, emitting carbon? Hmm. Um, and the problem is that we've become completely dependent on it. It's, it's woven into hmm. every aspect of our lives. And, you know, that it's how we run society. So it's not easy to, to think how to how to winkle it out. Yeah. In, in my dark moments, I'm, I'm not sure that we'll succeed. In, in my more optimistic moments, I, I think um, we are certainly, we've we have raised the profile of this problem. And I think people, even people who were a bit, you know, dismissive of it before are starting to take notice. We really need to be um, interacting with, with politicians I think. Yeah. Um, also the general public. Uh, so I, th I think we need a two-pronged approach. Like we need the general public because the, they're voters uh, and the politicians will listen to them in a way that they 
might might not listen to scientists. But also, I do think that scientists do have um, do carry um, some respect, and, and our word does have some weight, and certainly in some se- sectors of the decision makers in society. Things like funding panels, for example, you know, we we could be exerting influence there when, when we're having funding meetings and so. So I think I think we need um, to to just use our weight as scientists and also to look at how we ourselves operate. Like, what do we? Mm. How do, how can we decarbonize our own operations? Yeah, yeah. In many ways, it's I suppose less about diagnosing the problem. Like we we know the problem is there and. We often also know, I mean, I'm not maybe not so much, but we often know also what to do. I think it's partly like a social problem, like how, how to convince people how to, and that's already like the problem. Like often there's maybe a how to convince people is like, um, we really have to think about like what motivates people to go to action because maybe a lot of people don't respond to sort of, um, authority on this. And, uh, I don't know, like, I guess it's a question of social change and how I, I, I did a bachelor in sociology. So I was like, yeah, I did like oh, some yeah. weird, I had like an article where I uh, looked at this French philosopher, Michel Foucault, and I made some weird comparisons about how um, he had this idea, this, okay, this is maybe a bit of a search, but there was, uh, in, when we, when we had the plague, there was a lot about, uh, do you kind of exclude people who are victims of it? So that this is kind of the excluded leper model. Or then there was a kind of a change where we started kind of categorizing everything. We said, okay, we're going to count the different quarters of where the population is. And we started quantifying all of these things. And then how, when you look at climate change deniers, how a lot of our, or like even with all of these social issues about like vaccinations and so on, how we kind of categorize groups and that leads to then more identity politics based mm. off. And I just linked that to something easy as like a climate change denier meme, how that already polarizes. And then uh, a lot to do with sort of this authoritative figures. Anyway, that, that's a bit of a stretch now. But yeah, no, um, I, I mean, I do think it's, it is a sociological problem, but it's it's also, mm. it's kind of a, um, a computational theoretical problem as well, in a way, like we've got a system um of individuals each individual constantly making decisions so so mm. ultimately we need all of the individuals mm. to make the the right decisions but the individuals are making decisions based on what the individuals around them are doing yeah. kind of like themselves you know <laughs> <laughs> um and the problem is that you know if an individual does something different from from what everyone else is doing around them the only thing that changes is them you know, so if you stop yeah. eating meat, nothing else changes, but you're just not having meat anymore. So you've mm. lost something, but not, nobody's gained anything. You can only get um, the gain if everybody flips the same way. So really what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a, a tipping point, really, um, mm. f- for the planet-wide society. So yeah. you know, we need all of the individuals to do it. And so that's why in my dark moments, I just think that's not possible, you know. Mm. But in my more optimistic moments, I sort of think, yeah, but we are quite connected. So now we do yeah. share a lot of our information. We do all agree that we don't want to burn. <laughs> <laughs> we want the planet to stop heating up. 
So so we can get some agreement, I think. Yeah, mm. there, there'll always be climate deniers and, and conspiracy theorists. But once the weight of opinion is, this is happening, we need to do something, um, then I think that we might be able to make changes. So, so I think um, we need people to be helping that social change happen, but we also need people to... Um, to help us with what changes need to be made. So we need clean, we we need clean energy badly. Mm. Like we need something that doesn't um cause carbon emissions that will meet our energy needs. Yeah. Um so you know, if I was if I was the president of the world, <laughs> I would be funding energy projects and sociology. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And not yeah. neuroscience, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. Sadly. Yeah. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's it's the, the local network is really like where the change happens. Like I, my my sister has been um, great at this for a long time. Like she she barely flies. She like takes like she, we. I'm half Finnish, and she went all the way to Finland over like north of Sweden, and then so she, because she her. didn't want to ta- even take the ferry, right? That's, uh, and, that's amazing. Yeah, now now I took the ferry and the bus to kind of do half the what, what she was doing. But it's it's uh, it it's that thing where. It's not that she kind of like pushed it on us and saying, oh, you have to do it. It's just you see other people do it in the environment and you start emulating the same actions. And it, it's, it's it's very much on a local level. Um, and I think this is like, this is kind of the problem I have often with people where they say, well, um, what I do doesn't, it's like my vote doesn't matter enough. It's like this little impact. So what, why should I bother and put myself mm. in this hustle? And like all these little things add up, especially in the social network influence way. Exactly. But, yeah. but, but you do need to believe that other people have the same mindset. Yeah. Yeah. Like there needs to be some sense of we're all doing this. You know, I'm willing mm. to make a sacrifice if I see everyone else sacrifice yeah. too. I'm willing to pay taxes out of my salary if I see that everyone else is doing their bit as well. So, and I think that's the, but we haven't got to yet with climate change mm. is that people are making individual sacrifices, but they're not seeing um, everyone else doing it. Yeah. And so we need to kind of think about how, how to create that, that tipping point, mm. um, which is why yeah. I think we need to, we need some top down control from politicians as well. We need someone in government to say, you know, everybody needs to be doing this thing. Mm. Um, we're going to, there's going to be a fuel tax. I know it's going to be unpopular, but everybody's going to be paying more for their petrol because it's a fossil yeah. fuel. Too bad. It's necessary. Yeah. And then you'll think, okay, maybe I won't take my petrol car. Maybe I'll take my. Mm. Yeah. Not... So yeah, it's a really big problem. Yeah, um, tax is one of those obvious things that should be done in a way. Yeah. Um, but uh, we only have five minutes, and I really want to talk about your new role at Glasgow. So. Um, you're the new head there of the neuroscience and psychology department. For you, it's really important to merge those two. Why, how, and why should we merge neuroscience and psychology? Ah, because <laughs> um, I, I think to really understand something, um, you need to get you need to get a sort of mechanistic understanding right down to the nuts and bolts, the matter. Um, mm. And I think the mind is fascinating. I think the human mind is the most amazing creation in the universe. Um, but to understand it, we, you know, we know that the mind now is generated by the brain, um, but how, you know? <laughs> mm. um, so, I, so I just think that, you know, psychology and neuroscience belong together. And in terms of my own research, I've always liked being in the middle where I'm looking at the brain and looking at how um, understanding what the neural code is that's tra- trying to, 
process a particular kind of information to, to drive a particular kind of behavior. I, I like that level. And um, so when this job came up that, you know, has the mission to, to kind of bring psychology and neuroscience together, and I looked at who was here, and I sort of, there were, there's a lot of human cognitive neuroscience, and there's a lot of um, animal spinal cord mainly, uh, not, not exclusively, but mainly spinal cord, um, cellular neuroscience. But there's a big gap in the middle of neural circuits, mm. brain, um, you know, behavior. And that's the gap that I've always worked in. And I thought I could come here, fill in that gap, get people talking to each other across this gap, you know. Um, mm. And this would be a nice kind of unifying thing to do. Um, it would give another dimension to the um, the teaching programs here as well. The sort of Because I think students, a lot of students come in wanting to know about the brain and the mind. So brain and mind. Mm courses are very popular hmm. um and i think partly because people like to have this really deep understanding of things you know they, they want to learn about how people make decisions but they want to understand also at a computational you know slash neural level how that process is working um so yeah that's yeah. Uh, that's the mission <laughs> how's the bridging going so far i mean you started recently but uh yeah yeah so pretty well i think so we're we're in the process of recruiting behavioral neuroscientists um, and um, and I've started fleshing out with um, with the teaching team ideas for how we're going to build up the um, the teaching program. So the the idea is that we're going to start with the um, the fourth year. So in fourth year in in Scottish universities, that's when students do their final year of their degree, their, their honours year, um, and they have some choice over their subjects. So we're going to um, fill that with behavioural neuroscience modules, <laughs> and then sort of work back down the levels. So we, we have a kind of a, five-year plan type of thing um and uh, yeah there's lots of buy-in from the the people who have the the money you know the, co the college they really like these plans i think that it makes sense and there's there's a good business case for it and so on so yeah so far it's going going well and i'm looking forward to to seeing it unfold i like to yeah. have a kind of a project and i like to have a, a you know a reasonably well-defined project which this one felt like so yeah, that sounds good. Um, thanks, Kate, for taking the time. This was such a good discussion. I, I'm really looking forward to editing this because I can basically listen for it like two or three times now, uh, and kind <laughs> I, of like work through all, all you said. There, yeah, so much time. I, I, so to, thank I, you for I, that. I do have a tendency to ramble. <laughs> no, it was really interesting things, uh, especially things because often when I prepare for these episodes, I have a sort of a sense of what the person might say because I prepared questions, but really I like, uh, I was just like, oh, like, okay, well, I need to think about that. Oh yeah. I need to think about it. So that, that was really interesting. Thank right. you. Oh, that's good. So, so what, what's your situation now? Are you, you, you're about to start a PhD. Did you say? Or uh, a master. It's, it's a master in tubing and, but, um, we, we talked about the crow experiments I like to do. So it might be a master plus a PhD. Right. Um, right. yeah. Oh, no, yeah. I was just wondering, cause I'm, trying to recruit PhD students right now. So <laughs> so if you know of anyone who's interested in this area. Yeah. Uh yeah. I'll I'll forward that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. Anyway, thank you. Thank you for giving thank you very me much. the opportunity to expand. And uh yeah, I, I look forward to and uh, thank you also just for publicizing the field. I mean it's really great to have um people like you who are communicating because people who are lab based scientists are often not very good at that. So um, it's much appreciated. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to find out when new episodes are coming out, follow me on Twitter. 
I'd also really appreciate it if you could rate or review this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcast. And if you have any feedback, drop me an email at axeli.ilmanen at gmail.com. Until next time.